Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to continue our conversation with Dr. Casey Griffiths. We're going to get in deep into the history of LDS seminaries and institutes. We'll talk about two key figures, Thomas Yates and Joseph Merrill. Joseph was an apostle uh, that served in the 19... He died in the 1950s, so it's going to be a fun conversation. You won't want to miss it. Check it out. Well, what I thought we could do, because I want to talk about your other book, too. Mm-hmm. There was uh, uh, Rusty Yates that kind of ties your, the two books together. Oh, Thomas Yates. Thomas Yates. Thomas Yates, okay. So the other book that uh, came out about a year ago was No, called, wasn't there one in your 50 Relics? There about? is, in 50 Relics. This is another thing that I may have slipped in personally. <laughs> so I worked for seminaries and institutes, and before I came to BYU, I got brought into the church office building uh, to write the centennial history of seminaries and institutes. So seminaries and institutes had their centennial in 2012, and they wanted a big book to basically first century of seminaries and institutes. And, uh, and Canon Audrey Godfrey had written a draft, and I got brought in to kind of shape up the draft and add to it. Uh, Randy Hall, who's one of the administrators of Seminary Institutes, helped. But, but even before we, we got to that, the 2012 anniversary was coming up, and um, the book wasn't going to be done. <laughs> uh, in fact, the book came out in 2015, three years late, but they wanted something. So they had me write a 40-page um, summary that you can still find on Gospel Library of the History of the Seminary Program. So I'm trying to track down the very first seminary teacher. And I found his his memoirs, which are in the Church History Library. He's a guy named Thomas Yates. Fascinating guy. Thomas Yates was educated at Cornell in a time when not a Latter-day Saints went back east. Uh, Thomas Yates, uh, you've heard that story about Leo Tolstoy and the American religion. Have you heard this before? I don't think so. It's, it's in a marvelous work in a wonder by LeGrand Richards, but Andrew oh. White, who's the president of Cornell University. I only read that 20 years ago. Oh, okay, okay. So Andrew White is the president of Cornell University, and he visited Russia, and while he was in Russia, he talked to Leo Tolstoy. And Andrew White said that Tolstoy came up to him and basically said, I want you to tell me about the American religion. And Andrew White said, we don't really have a state religion in America. And, and uh, Tolstoy goes, no, I want to hear about the American religion. And it turns out Tolstoy was talking about Latter-day Saints. And Andrew White, you know, kind of dismissed him and said, well, all I know is that they're in the West and that they're kind of weird and they practice polygamy. <laughs> and uh, Leo Tolstoy, this is being filtered through Andrew White, apparently said, I'm surprised that you're so dismissive. Um, a religion with these kinds of foundations, if it can endure through its first generation unchanged, is destined to become the greatest force in the history of the world. Hmm. Well, that story, uh, which is in A Marvel's Work and Wonder, it turns out was told to Thomas Yates. Thomas Yates was a student at Cornell when Andrew White was the uh, president. And apparently, because of Leo Tolstoy, Andrew White took a particular interest in Thomas Yates and took him aside and told him this story. Thomas Yates publishes it in the um, Improvement Era, and then it gets put into LeGrand Richard's book, and now it's sort of folklore in the church that, uh, you know, we, we take it so far as to say Tolstoy was a, was a you know, closeted Latter-day yeah, Saint. When in reality, you know, it's a, third, <laughs> it's a third-hand story filtered through two people, but I don't have any reason to believe that it isn't true. Right. Um, so, so Yates comes back to um, Salt Lake and is the engineer working on the Murray power plant. When the granite stake that Joseph Merrill is the counselor in the state presidency is over, 
uh, recruits him to be the first seminary teacher. And uh, why Yates? Well, he's really educated. He's really smart. It seems like he was a pretty funny guy. He talked about like pranks where he'd tip over the outhouse in his hometown of Scipio, or where somebody was inside. Yeah, somebody was inside. He, one of his teachers, he said they disassembled his wagon and put it on top of a shed. They reassembled it there just to mess with him. Seems like he was a really funny guy. Uh, he gets recruited to be the very first seminary teacher. So there's only two classes the very first year. The building isn't done. The building, by the way, of the first seminary they build. It looks like one of those bungalow houses you'd see in Salt Lake in an old neighborhood. They built it so that when the seminary failed, they could sell the building as a house. <laughs> um, so 2500 bucks, The Granada Seminary ponies up 2500 bucks to build the seminary building. And Thomas Yates goes and teaches two classes. Now, in those first two classes, Thomas Yates teaches Howard McDonald, who's one of the presidents of BYU, and a lady, a young girl named Mildred Benyon. Uh, Mildred Benyon um, was raised in a semi-active home, and a year after she joined the first seminary class, her father passed away. If the name Mildred Benyon um, rings a bell with you, uh, she is Henry B. Eyring's mother. Oh. So Henry B. Eyring, actually, when he became commissioner of the church educational system, had somebody, somebody brought him the roll book from the very first seminary that Thomas Shades presided. And he opened it up, and he's looking through it, and he saw his mom's name there. And he realized that a, a, a program that opened in 1912 had a connection to the Church Commissioner of Education in the 2000s, basically. So, so we wanted to you know, find out more about Thomas Yates, because he only serves for a year. Uh, and then he said it was too much. He had to ride his horse from the power plant to teach class. I think they paid him 100 bucks or something like that to do this. Um, and he, he retires, basically, and sort of fades into obscurity. And so we, we wanted a photograph of him for the centennial. Boyd K. Packer was going to give a big speech to the youth, and we wanted to show the first seminary teacher. So I tracked down his daughter. It was his granddaughter, actually. Um, and one of the most special experiences of my life, I came there and found out that his granddaughter, her daughter, had just died five days before I got there. And she was going to have to adopt a grandchild oh. and nobody had um, nobody had ever reached out to the family and she was so excited she opens up this photograph book and there's photograph after photograph after photograph of Thomas Yates uh, very first images we could really find of him and who he was and I mean this is three days before <laughs> um, uh, this is three days before the centennial I got to go to the centennial and big screen in the conference center there's there's the picture of Thomas Yates. Wow. And they actually had made a movie of Thomas Yates where President Eyring talked about his mother. And the guy that they cast, who was Dallin Bales, looked like Thomas Yates. Like, it all worked together really Oh, nice. wow. Well, Thomas Yates, um, Thomas Yates is kind of, you know, faithful church member, but really doesn't do anything of, 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 of you know, historic significance after that. And, you know, you could, you could make the case. Um, in the 1950s, they wanted to commemorate the first Granite Seminary. And so they commissioned Mahanre Young to make a statue. Uh, no, it was Mahanre Young or Avert Fairbanks. I think it's Avert Fairbanks. Avert Fairbanks does a bust of Thomas Yates. And uh, this is in the Granite Seminary for years. And I had heard students that went to the Granite Seminary tell me that Thomas Yates, who had a huge nose, by the way, and the noses reflect on the statue, would rub the nose for luck on their way out. It's kind of like John Harvard at Harvard University, his 
his um, the, his foot is bright because students rub his foot for luck. Um, <laughs> like I was told at Granite Seminary that on your way out of the building, you'd rub Thomas Yates' nose uh, for luck. So they tore down the Granite Seminary in the 1990s. I mean, the original building, or at least parts of it, were there from 1912 into the 1990s. Oh, wow. And they built a new Granite Seminary. So I went to the new Granite Seminary to say, is the Thomas Yates statue here? And they were like, we don't know where it is. And so I started to like check around church headquarters to find Thomas Yates. And I found him. He was at the Church History Museum. So deep storage on the Church History Museum. They pull out the statue of Thomas Yates, and I'm happy to say his nose was bright and shiny, <laughs> just like somebody had sat there and polished it until all of the brown was rubbed off. And, and that was just another one of those, hey, this is a guy nobody's heard of. Right. Uh, his family, you know, sees him as a great man. And I mean... He's really closer to what a seminary teacher today is, where most seminary teachers are part-time. They get up in the morning, they teach early morning seminary to a bunch of kids who are really tired. Uh, that was more Thomas Shates than a guy like me, because Thomas Shates was a volunteer who wasn't professional, um, who, who just loved the gospel and, and wanted to teach it. And so I'm, I'm happy to say that there's a picture of him in the book. While I worked for seminaries and institutes, I really leaned on Chad Webb, who's the head of Seminary Institutes, to move the statue to the offices of Seminary Institutes, but I got shot down on it. Like maybe the book will move the they'll move the meter a little bit there, and they'll pull the old guy out of storage and and put him on the floor again. But I was just really touched that for for me, you know, it seemed like the day I visited his granddaughter was one of the worst days of her life. Oh, and three days later, she was given a VIP ticket to the conference center. Uh, to, and got to see that video and see the photograph of her father, or her, I guess it's her grandfather on right. the screen. And it was a really, really touching moment where you realize, hey, we like to joke and laugh about people, but these are real individuals who devote their heart and soul uh, to what they do. So I'm, it, it, he's another one of those people that I'm glad is going to get a little recognition in this book. That's cool. Well, that leads us to another book. Um about the guy who who hired Thomas Yates. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, this is um, this is another again passion project. This, there's nothing commercial about this, <laughs> uh, but this is another guy who not very many people know about. But I think more people should. This is Joseph F. Merrill. Um, Joseph F. Merrill is uh, an apostle from 1933 to 1952. Uh, but prior to that, uh, Elder Merrill is um, he's the father of the seminary program. In fact, you can make the case he's the father of religious education in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, it was his idea to start the first release time seminary, which in turn leads to early morning seminary. He's the church commissioner of education when um, the university, when, when the first sem institute opens in Moscow, Idaho. He writes a ton of letters explaining what he thinks an institute should be. And he's, he's probably best known in the church today if his name pops up with in relation to Gordon B. Hinckley. He was Gordon B. Hinckley's mission president. Right. So he's the guy that sends Gordon B. Hinckley back to church headquarters to, to get a job. Uh, but the reason why President Hinckley was sent was because Elder Merrill felt like the church's proselyting materials were just way out of date. And he wanted to send President Hinckley to beg for them to update their meat. And that starts the whole media approach to the church, which President Hinckley is the father. So... His papers are here at BYU, and I wrote my master's thesis on him. And after I was done with my, ma my master's thesis was just the five years he was church commissioner of education. After that, I started to explore his life further and realized there's enough here for a full biography. 
and a really important biography because this is a guy who's born when plural marriage is happening. He's the first son of the fourth wife of Apostle Meritor Merrill, who, boy, we've got to have another conversation about him. Um, and he ends with the church kind of being in its modern David O. McKay uh, setting. So his life really spans this transitional period where he grows up in a polygamous household, you know, and tells stories about a secret hideaway where his dad could jump into if the feds came looking for him. And he ends, you know, with a worldwide church um, post-World War II era that really you could argue we're still in right now. And so I just think he's a really fascinating figure. And not only that, he leaves behind this historical record that was deeply personal too. So a lot of letters to and from his wife while he was in graduate school. He's the first Latter-day Saint from Utah to get a PhD. He's a geology, if I remember right. He had PhD in uh, chemistry. Chemistry. And then he's a professor of physics at the University of Utah. Um, all these letters back and forth with his wife. His wife is the granddaughter of John Taylor and Orson Hyde, Annie Hyde Merrill. Annie Laura Hyde Merrill, which goes by Laura. And she also was a great discovery, too, that she is lively and political. And she's like, you know, telling him... She turned him into a Democrat. Yeah, I I can't marry a Republican. I can only marry a Democrat. Basically, she gives him an ultimatum in one of his letters. But they also, in the 1890s, are having all these really smart, sharp conversations about women in the priesthood and plural marriage and a bunch of things that we think they just didn't think about back then. So he writes her and basically says, yeah, women can hold the priesthood with their husbands, I mean, right? Like, which is the standard line you still hear in the church today. And she's writing back and saying, no, women can go to the temple without their husband. So isn't that priest? Like, can't they hold the priesthood? And she's familiar with the Relief Society. That's where Joseph Smith is saying, I'm going to give you authority to heal. I'm going to ordain you to the priest and everything like that. So <clears throat> she is remarkable. And part of the theme of the book, too, is that Merrill... Merrill was a scientist, and he approached religion scientifically. Like, when he has two major spiritual experiences in his life, the second one, he's on a train coming back to Utah, and he has just decided, okay, I'm going to go to church, but I'm going to sort of be neutral. And he, he opens up a newspaper where his friend Richard Lyman had just been made a, a Sunday school president, and gets this... General electric, Sunday school president, right? I don't know if it was a general Sunday school presidency, oh. but... Um, he gets this electric feeling, you're going to be one of his counselors. And he, he s- describes it as the second spiritual experience of his life. The first one happens right before he goes to college. And he literally wrote up, like, here's, here's the sensations I felt, and sends it to a, a scientific conservatory in Boston for their analysis. Like, can you tell me what was happening physiologically with me in this moment <laughs> that I felt the spirit? Uh, and that becomes, you know, one of the funnest aspects of his character is this is a guy who, when he bore his testimony, was more prone to talk about, you know, the laws of physical science than he was to talk about the scriptures. I think he loved the scriptures and was familiar with them. But the, to him, the real evidence that God exists was the world around us. But the point is that is he also was, a, was really, really almost fanatical about the word of wisdom. And his wife, his first wife, Laura, gets cancer. And she passes away. He does everything he can, including radiation therapy, which is radical in the 19-teens. But she, she, he loses her. Right. Uh, and which is a huge emotional loss. For yeah, him. there's this poignant theme throughout the rest of his life where he, he keeps writing things like, if I had understood the word of wisdom better, maybe I wouldn't have lost her. 
And the word but of wisdom. She obeyed the word of wisdom. She obeyed right? the word of wisdom. Like she wasn't, you know, smoking and drinking all the time. But in his life, it came down to, you know, maybe the principles of the word of wisdom that we don't appreciate. Like he's the last apostle to give a speech on eating less meat in general conference. Um, the most vegetarian um, general conference talk ever given. Uh, and throughout his life, there's this theme of maybe if we'd lived the word of wisdom a little bit more, I wouldn't have lost my wife. He gets married again. His second wife is a convert to the church who it seems like she got baptized and then three days later they got married. Wow. Um, he loses her as well. She's, she's remarkable. German Lutheran convert to the church, accompanies him on his service as mission president. And then his youngest daughter, uh, he doesn't have any children with his second wife. This is the last son of his first wife who's named after her, Nora, also gets cancer. Um, and the last few years of his life oh, here's my chance. I can implement all the principles of the word of wisdom and it will prevent her from dying of cancer too. I lost my first Laura. I'm not going to lose my second Laura. And there's this poignant thread in his journals where he has to watch her waste away too. He puts her on this restrictive, you know, no meat diet, um, is using grape juice and a bunch of other things to try and fight cancer. And there's just nothing he can do. Like she wastes away. And he has to lose her. And it's, you know, another great crisis of faith in his life. And yet he never loses his faith. So he spent his entire life trying to find this sort of harmony between science and religion. And the word of wisdom seems like, you know, for him, this is both, right? This works on both levels. But it also seems like and he was an individual who was, was concerned with control. You know, if I can just understand the laws of the universe well enough, I can control things. And in the last few years of his life, it feels like the last great lesson that he learned was, I can't control everything. You know, I can live the word of wisdom perfectly, but that might not stop my wife and daughter from getting cancer. And he doesn't die of cancer or anything like that. He just dies peaceful in his sleep uh, at an advanced age. But there's a poignance, really, that I found in him that made me just sort of really come to love him deeply uh, for, for his faults and his weaknesses, but also for his... His goodness, where he was just a person that genuinely thought, there's a way to solve every problem. And when it comes to the institutes, that was another interesting thing, was he writes a letter to the first institute director, Wiley Sessions, and says the reason institute exists is to reconcile what they learn in college with what they learn in church. So rather than you know a, religious, a religion teacher getting up and saying, your biology teacher is off in left field, man, like he doesn't know what he's talking about, Joseph Merrill would say, sit down and explain to them how what they just learned in biology shouldn't weaken their testimony. It should strengthen it. That science, if it's properly understood, is truth. Like the quote that shows up in his writings again and again was this little couplet, the truth is truth where it is found on Christian or on heathen ground. And so I, I, I titled the book Truth Seeker because that's the name he actually chose for the one book, one gospel book he published, The Truth Seeker and Mormonism. But it was because this was a guy who got just as excited uh, to learn about, you know, the laws of conservation of matter as he was to learn about the moral laws of the universe. And so it's a beautiful and a poignant story, and um, it's been well-received. It got nominated for Best Biography. I didn't win. <laughs> it's a, it, you Is know, that at Whitmer? Or it, was, MHA it was nominated at MHA and okay. John Whitmer. Oh. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't win. Um, the, the book 
They got beaten by the same book both times, which is Sally and Three Worlds, which I haven't had a chance to read yet. Oh, I haven't read that either. Uh, it's, about, it's about Sally Kanosh, which, again, that's a Millard County story that, oh. that I, I knew about Sally So Kanosh. she's an Indian. Well, Kanosh was an Indian chief, right? Kanosh was an Indian chief. Sally was a, uh, a, a captive. She was, she was a Shoshone. That was was she the one with the uh, tattoo on her chin? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. But she was raised in Brigham Young's household. And uh, I haven't read the book, but apparently it deals with all those issues of, you know, that we've got to civilize Sally. And, and yet they still marry Sally to, a, to an Indian chief, Chief Kanash, who converts to the church. Um, I wasn't sad to lose to her. It sounds like a remarkable book, if I, mm. even if I haven't read it. But, boy, this is probably the most personal thing I've written. Um, well, and I loved it because, especially, um, I, I interviewed Shannon Caldwell Montez just recently. Are you familiar with her? I, I'm not, no. She, she wrote a thesis in, uh, on the 1922 secret meetings with B.H. Roberts and all the problems with the Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the anachronisms and things. And, and so she referred to, in 1922, and it's, it's funny because Joseph Merrill, it sounds like he's, he just missed that. He was like right after that. Yeah. Because there was a lot of uh, uh, meetings where B.H. Uh, Roberts got all of these, uh, as, as Shannon calls them, Mormon intelligentsia to talk about anachronisms in the, BYU, in the Book of Mormon and um, languages and, and everything. Um, and... and I don't think Joseph Merrill was in those meetings, but he was right after. And the thing that I loved about your book, um, because it seems like, well, she talked a little bit about BYU and the problems with evolution and BYU, whereas he taught at the University of Utah, and they had a lot of the same problems. (laughs) (laughs) The, the, The Utah was too controlled by the church, which I was like, well, you don't hear that anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the undiscovered stories in the book was that so Merrill's uncle is Joseph Kingsbury, right. Kingsbury Hall, and everything right, like that. Right. And it seems like it wasn't a case of nepotism. It was like Merrill was one of the only people that had a PhD, but Merrill was on track to take over the U. Like, right. if everything had gone according to plan, he would have been the president of the U after Joseph Kingsbury. But in 1915, there is this explosion at the University of Utah. And the accusations are that the church has too much influence right. at the University of Utah. And uh, a whole bunch of faculty members resigned. John Dewey comes to Utah as part of the American Association of University Professors mm-hmm. to investigate, you know, malfeasance. At is the this University. the Dewey Decimal System this guy? This is the Dewey Decimal System guy. This is the father of modern education in America is here in the middle of the smackdown. And again, this is like a story I didn't know anything about. Merrill's right in the middle trying to satisfy all parties because he's an active church member. Um, he's, he's a professor at the university, and he's on track to become the next president of the university. By the time it was over, a whole slew of faculty members resigned, and Joseph Kingsbury was just left devastated and had to resign as president of the university, too. And that causes, He was kind of the vice president of the yeah, university, Yeah, Joseph right? Merrill is arguably the vice president, and now he's sort of shoved off to the side. And John A. Winslow becomes president of the university. Uh, another apostle. apostle. Another apostle. And so all this is, is weaved together. But boy, a book project I'd really love to pursue is that in the 1930s, you have uh, James E. Talmadge, John A. Winslow, Richard Lyman, Joseph Merrill, all professors at the University of Utah, all scientists um, who all migrate to the Quorum of the Twelve. And this is, we're talking, you know, around the same time as the Scopes Monkey Trial, 
when fundamentalists, Christian fundamentalists, are basically saying, no science, no evolution, it's faith-destroying. In our church, for some reason, it was like, hey, there's a great chemist at the University of Utah. Let's put him in the Quorum of the Twelve. Like, it seems like you still had your Joseph Fielding Smiths, who were, you know, scriptural fundamentalists, too. But the leadership of the church saw these scientists as great leaders and great advocates for the gospel. And that's another place where a statistic from A Marvelous Work and Wonder that struck me as a kid, Legrand Richards is touting Utah, and he says Utah per capita produces more scientists than any other state in the nation. Now, I don't think that's true anymore, but the statistics he quotes there are from the 1930s. And there's this scientific flowering uh, where Latter-day Saints really ran contrary to the national trends in that we just didn't see science and religion as opposed to each other. And I tried to find a place where Merrill dealt with evolution. It seems like every time the question brought up, Merrill would be like, why are you playing around in the mud? Like, look at the stars and look at the order of the universe. Of course there's a God. Who cares how he created our bodies, basically, was the gist of the message I got from him. To where he just didn't engage, basically, on that question. Because to him, you know, the... The physics were evidence enough for him that, you know what, if we, if we came from evolution, who cares? You know, that's how God created our bodies, big deal. Right. And it feels like a lot of the solutions that he presented in the 1930s are the sort of things we could still use today to reconcile faith and science, to basically say, hey, do we really have to argue over how old the earth is or, you know, if humans evolved from lower orders of creation? When we've got this big, bright, beautiful universe to explore. There's this quote by Carl Sagan that Neil A. Maxwell started to quote, uh, like to quote a lot, where he said, science has surpassed religion in delivering awe. He said, you'd think the religions would grasp onto science and say, God is greater and more powerful than we thought he was, but instead religions will say, no, 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 my God's a small God, and I want him to stay that way. Then Carl Sagan said, a religion older knew that embraced science as evidence of God's majesty would really be able to do some amazing things. And I think you can see in the 1930s, guys like James Talmadge and John Woodsow and, and Richard Lyman and Joseph Merrill um, breaking that ground, basically saying, why are we fighting against science? Why aren't we using it right. as evidence? I mean, you could argue that the Book of Mormon does that. Alma, when he's talking to Korhor, says, the evidence that God exists to me is the scriptures, the testimony of these brethren, and the planets that do move in their regular form of creation. They all witness that there's a divine creator. And maybe instead of being defensive about this or that aspect of science, we ought to be more projective in saying, hey, take a look at this. Like, look at what the web telescope's doing right now. How cool is that? And how much does this witness to us of the order and grandeur and beauty of the universe? And when I got into the literature, one of, one of Merrill's talks was actually called Nature is Kind to Man. He was responding directly to Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison's a famous atheist during this time. And when a newspaper asks him, why are you an atheist? Edison's one-line response is, it doesn't appear that nature is kind to man. In other words, there's so much in the universe calculated to kill us and destroy us. It doesn't seem like we're really supposed to be here. Merrill, on the contrary, goes through and says, no, nature is kind to man. Like, look at all the things that had to come together precisely and perfectly for the human race to exist where it does. Nature is overwhelmingly kind of man, so kind that you can't attribute it to random chance. You have to say there's some sort of benevolent overseer that set everything up for us here. Like I said, I just feel like 
this guy got me through graduate school, you know? <laughs> I wrote my master's thesis on him, and then I wrote my PhD. And I wasn't doing anything that, you know, should really have rocked my foundations. It was just the general cynicism that pervades higher education that sort of would bring me down. And he sort of was giving me pep talks, you know, saying, hey, it's okay that you're learning this stuff. You just learned something you didn't know. That's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. Embrace that and incorporate it into your life and use it as evidence that God is more powerful and more wonderful than you ever imagined he was. And so, I mean, it, it's deeply personal in the sense that I see Elder Merrill as a personal mentor uh, to me. There's huh. somebody that really took me by the hand and led me on my faith journey through those difficult areas to the point to where now I, I give this speech, you know, every semester to my kids to, to say, hey, go and study biology. It's cool. And if you find something that you can't reconcile with the scriptures, big deal. Uh, <laughs> it, it reconciles with the glory and majesty of God. And I mean, this, take the scriptures for what they are and take science for what it is. Let's meet somewhere in the middle where we can all just look around and say, the universe is beautiful and wondrous and amazing. See, because we always hear about all of the... Because you teach in the Department of Ancient Scripture, right? I teach in Church History and Doctrine. Oh, Church yeah. History and Doctrine. Yeah. But you're in the building for Department of Ancient Scripture, I am. right? Yeah. And so, because we always hear that there's this battle between the church education people at BYU that are like anti-evolution and don't believe any of that stuff, and then the scientists who teach evolution. Yeah. And especially, it seems like in the 90s, they were really battling... Uh, but it seems like you're like, why do we need the battle? I, I don't see why. I think it's a false dichotomy. Like I said, Joseph Merrill would say, truth is truth where it is found on Christian or on heathen ground. So I work in the religion department and I'm trying to find truth. A uh, person that works in the physics department or um, in chemistry or in biology, I think they're trying to find truth. And honestly, that may have happened here. Like you can document a pretty robust history of that conflict that happened in every Christian university. But I think it doesn't have to happen here. And in the in the time I've been at BYU, I've never once really run into it. To where, you know Is there a peace treaty now between the biologists <laughs> and the church? I don't know if there was I don't I mean, if there's a war I missed it. Okay. Because I mean honestly uh, I just love what they do. And and when they come up with a new uh, study. I'm usually the first to post it on. So, when when the vaccines were being distributed, you know, a guy at BYU wrote a whole thing on how mRNA vaccines are safe, and here's the history of it. And I sent it to everybody I could find. Okay? <laughs> I was like, all right, read through this. I don't think anybody read it because nobody reads more than you know 240 characters anymore. Uh, but I was super thrilled about that. Yeah. I was excited. When you think about it, the head of the church right now is a scientist. Right. You know, Russell and Nelson was. A, was a medical researcher. Although so sometimes he doesn't seem to like evolution, though. Maybe, like. maybe. And I mean, maybe we need to keep a more open mind there before we embrace every scientific theory. At the same time, too, I don't think that we have to get knocked off our, our chair every time something new has come along. I think there's a... Joseph Merrill would say, <laughs> uh, there is a glorious, wondrous universe around us for us to explore. And that's what we are, is explorers. There's religious truth, there's scientific truth. But truth is truth, where it is found on Christian, on heathen ground. So just embrace truth. And that doesn't mean that you accept everything wholeheartedly without being skeptical and using the scientific process, whether it's religious or scientific truth. But there's a way to make it all work. And I feel like I, I identify with this guy because that was the great quest of his life. 
And I feel like it's been the same as mine. Well, and I know we talked a little bit about this last time, um, but he was the one who wanted to get seminary teachers theologically trained yeah. at the Chicago yeah. Divinity School. Yeah, one of the teachers, George Tanner, said, Joseph F. Merrill had so much faith in the gospel, he didn't think that anything we learned at Chicago would harm our testimonies. And, and in reality, it did. Uh, but I also <laughs> think that that's... I also think that's a false dichotomy, too. Like, for, for, there were some people that went to Chicago and learned their apostatized from the church, but for every one of them, there's a Sidney Sperry who learned the tools of scholarship and used it to bolster the church. I used it to explore it. And, and like I said, I, I think that ultimately what happened at Chicago and Joseph Merrill's influence, because all Joseph Merrill was saying is, like, if we're going to have a religion department at BYU— we got to have experts in religion. Like, right. he, he writes a letter. Like where experts in science. Yeah, he writes a letter where he says, would you have somebody teach physics that doesn't have a PhD in physics? We need to have PhDs in religion. And for a long time, we were really uncomfortable with that because we have a lay clergy. You know, the head of the church isn't a professional religion scholar, which is totally fine. It's actually really healthy. Uh, but nowadays, we're, we're more comfortable with the idea of religious scholars. We have rigorous projects like the Joseph Smith Papers. Uh, we have great scholars in places like BYU and BYU-Idaho who are experts in their field. Uh, that can. One of the reasons why Joseph Merrill wanted to keep BYU around was he said, we need to have experts in every field, including religion, that are familiar and conversant with the wider conversation about each one of these subjects, including religion, so that they can speak for the church in those areas. And just because the head of the church isn't a PhD in theology— doesn't mean that we don't need PhDs in theology that can translate when we're talking to other faiths. Uh, so I just think he had a far-reaching vision. And I mean, one of the reviewers for the book, I hope I'm not bragging here, says, it seems like Joseph Merrill did for education in the church what Reed Smoot did for politics in the church, where he just dragged us into the wider world and said, we've had our own cool little thing going here, but we've got to engage with other people if we really want to be the kingdom of God and influence people. Well, the one question I, I had for you, though, was it seems like Joseph Merrill said, let's let's get this divinity training going with the University of Chicago. And mm -hmm. then they called him on a mission. And then uh, um, it seems like J. Reuben Clark became a little bit concerned about yeah, some of yeah. this. And then it seems like Merrill kind of sided with Clark. And so I was wondering... If he hadn't gone on that mission, which was important because President Hinckley was his mission president, <laughs> but um, would do you? I, I, it just seemed like he kind of changed a little bit. He became a little bit more conservative, a little more concerned about the religious training. Yeah, and some of the Chicago guys come back and they start to make waves. Um, and and Jay Lubin Clark gives this speech called "The Charter Course: The Church and Education." where he basically says, you know, he lays down the law and says, you might have advanced training that doesn't take precedence over the leaders of the church who don't have advanced training. Um, and, and there's some battles that happen there. And Merrill, like I said, is a mediative force. Uh, he participated in some of these things. Him and Johnny Witso got pulled into J. Ruben Clark's orbit. And they, they helped pull back some teachers here at BYU that weren't disturbing people's faith. Uh, but at the same time, too, I mean, and this is secondhand, but George Tanner, who's one of the Chicago scholars, too, who's the head of the Moscow Institute for, I don't know, 30 years or something like that, who, by the way, is Leonard Arrington's teacher. Leonard Arrington said George oh. Tanner was the first person to show him an alternate translation of the Bible uh, and introduce him to religious studies. Um, George Tanner said he met with 
he he ran into Joseph Merrill near the end of his life. And I'll have to pull up this source, but ask something like, do you regret sending us to Chicago? And Merrill said, I'm not afraid of any kind of learning. And I mean, you could argue that, you know, biblical scholarship has either hurt the church or injured it, but I just don't think it has. I mean, I think it's part of our growing up process where we start to listen to the voices of other people and we don't have to accept everything they say. But think of all the good Sidney Sperry or Hugh Nibley did Mm -hmm. to where we don't have to be embarrassed about the Book of Mormon. Like, we've got a historically defensible case for the Book yeah. of Mormon. You've even got a Pentecostal scholar we've got a pe- as we've president got a, of the We've got a Book, Book of Mormon, Mormon Studies Association that brings yeah. together people from all over the place. I think Joseph Merrill played a big role in that. And it was because he just wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid to go out and say, what's everybody talking about? Whether they were church members or not. And what's the conversation? And he wanted us to be a part of that conversation. So... There's these two impulses to separate ourselves from the world and then to be a light to the world. And I think Joseph Merrill was very much the we've got to be a light to the world type person. The idea that we separate ourselves from the world is totally valid. It's scriptural. Um, some people have emphasized that. Uh, but Joseph Merrill was saying, how can we light the world unless they can see us and we can see them? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a, a really useful philosophy for members of the church to adapt today basically, before you get defensive, and there's sometimes where being defensive is merited, listen to what they have to say and try to find places where you can agree and then go from there. Defend what you have to defend and you don't have to roll over and die every time somebody brings something up. You also don't have to put on your boxing gloves in every conversation you have with someone who comes from a different background. Which happens way too often. We get way too defensive, right? And even in the religion department, someone comes in and presents a new study, and we're like, oh my gosh, is this guy apostate? We ought to at least listen to what they have to say before we make judgments like that. Because a lot of times they're coming from a good place too. And honestly, my conversations with um, other faiths have been incredibly meaningful and productive. Oh, very good. I know I need to let you go. I got to run the class. Thoughts, yeah, but, and they're going to uh, kick us out of here. All right. Um, <laughs> um, last thoughts. Uh, I love church history, um, and I hope we take that same fearless attitude with church history. To just when you learn something you don't know, don't freak out. Say, "Hey, I didn't know this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to explore this for a little while." Uh, if we take that idea that when we when we get into new territory that feels unmapped to us, it's not something to panic about, it's something to celebrate, I think it becomes a lot more fun for us. Yeah. And we, we, ha- we, we get to stop constantly feeling like we're in a castle under siege and feel more like we're an explorer walking through this beautiful country. Explorer is where I'm at. Uh, uh, seeing and hearing all these wonderful voices and seeing how it affects us. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah, me too. All right. Uh, Whitmer is in September of John 2023. John Whitmer, yes. Usually Probably fly into San Antonio, right? Last weekend in September in Fredericksburg. Everybody's welcome. Everybody come um, and and uh, and just experience this great world that you and I have All experienced. Right. And don't forget to purchase your copy of Truth Seeker. Truth Seeker. And 50, 50 More, more Relics, relics the Restoration. Restoration. Got another book we didn't even get to talk about, which is a dialogue with scholars from the community of Christ, but we'll, we'll have to do it. <laughs> okay. I'll send someone your way and you can interview them. All right. So. Well, thanks again, Dr. Amen. Casey Griffiths. We really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Casey Griffiths. Casey, thank you so much for sitting down with me and for your cool book, 50 Relics of the Restoration, and for Truth Seeker. So two fantastic books. You should get them for Christmas if you haven't. I know it's late, but uh, get on Amazon or Benchmark or wherever you can get them. 
In our next conversation, I'm excited to have John Hamer back on the show. So we're going to talk a little bit about the scattering of the saints. Um, at the time when the schism happened in, after 1844, as the different groups followed different leaders, people would be called Brighamites after, after, you know, after people who followed Brigham Young, Strangites after people who followed James Strang, Cutlerites after the followers of Alphaeus Cutler, Hedrickites after the followers of Granville Hedrick, Rigdonites after Sidney Rigdon, and Josephites after Joseph Smith III, in other words, Joseph Smith Jr., the founder's son. And so um, essentially, well, those constellations, those are the ones that are still living. And uh, obviously, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by far contains the most uh, mass. Uh, and then, like I say, community of Christ. Uh, but there are other, um, you know, Brighamite groups, both the fundamentalists that we talked about, the largest uh, uh, groupings of which are the Apostolic United Brethren, the AUB, and the FLDS Church, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.